0: Hi, I'm Bob Eckblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple, Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. In Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 22, we have his version of the Passover celebration that Jesus celebrates on the eve of his arrest. And it's uh, in Luke's version, we have immediately following Jesus's giving of his body and his blood in, uh, you know, the Last Supper. We have a dispute described among his disciples about who is to be regarded as the greatest. This is beginning in verse twenty-four, and this is the only gospel account where this occurs right, not right between his Passover and his arrest, and then his, uh, you know, his execution. And um, I find it amazing just that Jesus addresses the way he addresses his disciples here, and then the way he addresses Peter and Peter's whole evolution uh, throughout this chapter 22. And so let's check it out. So Jesus addresses his dis- arguing disciples. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant." Now this is certainly an upside down way of organizing um, an organization, isn't it? and disciples here are are being really offered a, a sort of a, a revolutionary understanding of leadership. Jesus says, "For who is the greater the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? is it not the one who reclines at the table? but I am among you as one who serves so Jesus is modeling this service of Um, you know, of giving his life. And then he goes on to really elevate these disciples who haven't yet come into this fuller understanding. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, he says in verse 28. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Wow. So he's just presented uh, one of his disciples as betraying him. And then immediately after he makes this uh, statement about the elevation of his 12 disciples, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. So Jesus addresses Simon Peter, who, you know, elsewhere is, is identified as Peter. But in Luke's gospel, we don't have the renaming of Simon to to Peter. But we do in both John chapter one, verse forty-two, where Jesus, uh, you know, identifies him as Simon and then calls him Cephas or Peter, changes his name, and then we also know this from you know Matthew chapter sixteen, you know, where Jesus, uh, after Peter responds or Simon responds by saying identifying Jesus as the Christ, the Son of a Living God, um, Jesus says. Um blessed are you Simon, Bar Jonah, so that was his name, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So Simon is Simon Peter is elevated in Mark, Matthew's Gospel, and but then here in Luke, he's called Simon. Simon, at this point where Jesus is um, prophesying about how Satan has demanded permission to sift him like wheat, which doesn't sound very good, does it? And Jesus says, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and that you when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So it's, there's an assumption here that Simon is going to need to turn again, or you know, be converted again, and um, you know, and we're going to see shortly that this will be necessary because Simon, um, you know, he he really has has to kind of come down a notch, um, and we see right away in verse 33, Simon's um you know, how he values himself and how he sees himself as a really strong advocate for Jesus. Simon says to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Okay, wow. So he's really placing himself up there at the level of Jesus. And, um, And Jesus says to him, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. So I love this. He he says, I say to you, Peter, So he's just called him Simon, but now he addresses him in that higher um, name that he's renamed him in other gospels. You know, the rock, um, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And, um, and then right immediately following this, we have, you know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where you know where he brings the disciples to pray with him and you know they're unable to to pray with him they fall asleep and you know and then he's betrayed by judas one of the disciples who in some of the gospel accounts is described as peter strikes the slave of the high priest and cuts off his right ear but here jesus stops them and heals the, this man's ear and um, and then he's taken off, and he's arrested, and so it must have been confusing for these disciples, right? Because they were following Jesus as the Christ, and they had views of the Messiah that were likely, you know, marked by the mindset of the times that he was going to be a conquering, victorious hero, and um, and there he is, he's being carried off by the authorities. So, um, in verse fifty-four, having arrested him, they led him. That is, Jesus away and they brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. Now, Peter's the only one who's described as following and um, you know, being present in any way after Jesus's arrest. But he's far from, you know, kind of they're going to prison and to death for Jesus, right? He's following at a distance. And after they'd kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them and a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, this man was with him too. And, um, and so here's Simon, his first opportunity to, you know, take a stand and to be, uh, you know, a strong advocate for Jesus and to be fearless and to be a macho, you know, sort of fighter and all that. Um, he cowers before a servant girl you know, who identifies him as one of Jesus' disciples. And it says, He denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And then a little while later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, "Man." i do not know what you're talking about and then immediately while he was still speaking a rooster crowed and um and here we have this moment of, of recognition and i just i'm amazed by verse 61 here it says the lord turned and looked at peter and um you know this turning and looking is something that um i've had some long discussions with several groups about in the last two days. You know, last night I was with a bunch of Russian guys in a recovery house in Krasnodar with my Russian translator friend. Um, And we looked at this and I was asking them, if, um, if someone turned and looked at you after you had, you know, denied them, would that be better or worse than if someone turned away and refused to look at them? And, um, And the men were saying, "Oh, you know, it would just—it would definitely be worse if someone turned away. If Jesus turned away and did not look at Peter, you know, that'd be far worse. And and in the Russian culture, you know, just refusing to look at someone would be far worse than actually looking at them. You know, turning and and deliberately looking at them. And um and so the men were really moved by by this, and we began um, talking about the." The really common viewpoint that sin separates, you know, God from human beings, because here's Jesus, the Son of God, and this would have been a perfect occasion to support that theology that sin separates us from God. You know, here Peter has denied Jesus three times, and um, and Jesus, rather than turning away and you know, and having the relationship be broken, you know, um, Jesus turns and and looks. And um, and it's interesting too that the word turn here, struffle, which um, you know is not the such a common verb, but it's the same verb that's used about uh, turning the other cheek, and I love to think of turning the other cheek as staying connected with the enemy. You know, when someone hits you on the on the on the one cheek, turn the other also. It's a way of like um, it, really asking disciples of Jesus us to. Stay engaged with the person that's the antagonist. And so in a way, that's what Jesus is doing here, isn't he? And so he turned and, and he looked at Peter. And um, the term here for look upon, um, epiblepo, is um, is like he looked intently at Peter. And, and then Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he told him before a rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. And... Um, and Peter is cut to the core. He went out and he wept bitterly. And I think here we see like a moment of conversion, don't we? Or at least a moment of of repentance. And, um, you know, and, and, and this is, I think, the humbling of Peter where, you know, Jesus' regard goes right into his core and he feels the connection with Jesus despite his turning away you know, um, and, and, and that leads to, you know, to lament, you know, to crying. And, um, I was asking the Russian guys, well, so would that be something that would be common among Russian men, even hardcore ex-offender guys like you guys? I mean, is it common to, to cry? And they say, oh yeah, you know, we, we cry, but of course we would never do it in front of anybody. We would just do it privately. (laughs) So, um, but anyway, um, Another thing that came up when we were in the discussion last night was the Russian guy says that said that denial of someone was a completely normal code of the street in Russia that everyone understands that if your um, if your friend is arrested, then everyone denies knowing them, and that that's that's just uh, something that everyone knows is is kind of the rule of the street because if you if you admit that you know someone then you know, you have, the, there's the risk that you're going to be arrested too. And the, and, and the crime is much worse if, if it's a crime that is done by a number of people, like it's a conspiracy than if it's more than one person. So everybody, you know, um, kind of scatters. And so what Peter did was, you know, was would have been considered just the, the normal right thing, intelligent, wise thing to do in a case like this. But at any rate, Peter... Was cut to the core because he really saw himself as someone who was going to be right at Jesus's side, and um, and so what happens immediately following this? You know, um, well, before we look at that, um, I was just asking, you know, the people, well, what would you prefer? You know, to you know, to weep bitterly or to take a stand, and um, and to be identified with Jesus right from the start. You know, why would have that been such um, something to be so afraid of? And of course, you know, just being arrested and the threat of incarceration, the threat of being beaten, just the violence of the Roman Empire would have been plenty of, plenty of a, a good enough reason to, you know, to, to be afraid, I guess. And what follows immediately after this confirms that. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him, and they were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. So so here we see, you know, this, you know, that what Jesus was really up against was pretty hardcore. You know, just um, people holding him in custody, mocking him, and beating him. And, uh, you know, I was asking the men whether that was, any of them had been mocked and beaten and most all of them had but none of them had been blindfolded at, you know while they were being mocked and beaten but of course that's something that happens to people today people that are being tortured and um and you know but the the level of of ridicule that Jesus experienced of you know being asked to prophesy who's the one who hit you and and the blasphemy you know is 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 awful and and then what comes Right after this just shows just how completely disrespectful, you know, the religious leaders of Jesus' time are are, you know, are they depicted as, as just awful, you know. When it was day the council of the elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus says to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. And then, um, but then he volunteers and offers them even more information than what they're asking. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And then they all said, are you the Son of God then? Okay, which is is saying something more than saying um, that he was the Messiah. And he said to them, yes, I am. And then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And then, um, then the whole body of them got up and they brought him before Pilate. So here, um, you know, the religious leaders, the chief priests, you know, the council of the elders are bringing Jesus and handing them over to the Roman, you know, the Roman Empire, you know, to the representative, to the governor, Pilate. And, um, and they began to accuse him, saying, you know, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a King. And, um, you know, it's like, like here they are, they're, they're just completely turning Jesus, you know, in, you know, just, um, I guess denouncing him. And, um, and Pilate, um, he asked them saying, or he asked Jesus, are you the King of the Jews? And, and, he answered him and said, it is as you say. Um, and then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And so in a way, you know, Pilate is really uh, maybe just seeing this guy. Okay, Jesus is kind of, he's got some mental health issues. He's he's psychotic. I mean, you know, he thinks he's the king. But I mean, obviously the Jews, um, they're all subjugated and they're under the control of the Roman Empire. So, Okay. So what? He's the king of the Jews, and the king of, and the Jews are are coming to me, Pilate, as the representative of the Roman Empire. So obviously, this is nothing to worry about, right? But um, they kept insisting, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place, and then um, and then Pilate. His response to that is is oh, he's a Galilean okay well there's another jurisdiction then and uh, Pilate uses that as an excuse to send him off to Herod and um, it's just it's just so incredible just rereading this story and seeing how uh, all of these authorities really they just don't see Jesus as as anybody and um, and of course that um, that plays itself out in The way that they end up, you know, um, turning him over to be crucified and, you know, executing him, even though he, um, they didn't recognize that he was even guilty of anything. And I, I just think it's, this is such a huge tragedy that is presented here in the gospel accounts and the disciples are a part of it, aren't they? You know, and Here Jesus is taking such a humble path of allowing himself to just go right to to his death, you know, through by the death penalty and um you know and refusing to um, you know to opt out of that and and he's inviting his disciples, you know, to to follow him in this similar path of refusing power according to this world and, and being about a kingdom that is not of this world. And um, I've just been thinking this Holy Week just about these kinds of things and been super touched by them. And um, last week I had the opportunity to, or two weeks ago, I had an opportunity to teach a group of 20, 22 or 23 students at um, a Lutheran Bible college up in uh, near Edmonton in Alberta. And it was a beautiful opportunity to read through the whole Book of Isaiah, and to teach, you know, over five days, and uh, you know, and I got I, I got a paperback from one of the students, and I I just like to share um, some of what this student, um, some of the reflections based on Isaiah chapter fifty three. You know, um, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So you know, the message of the gospel is something that many people just don't believe. You know, that um, God comes not as someone to be served, but as someone who comes to serve and to give his life, right, as a ransom for many. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. And, um, you know, here this... The way the way that the, the servant of the Lord um, which in the case of Isaiah is really clearly identified with the people of Israel, except in some of these psalms or poems like you know these servant psalms where you know where the servant is described as, as someone who is clearly identified with Israel in in their state of being exiled and being you know oppressed under the Babylonians um, and yet at the same time, He is described as despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one, like from among the people, from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not value him. And then it goes on, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And um, you know this this uh, presentation is uh, you know of the suffering servant, you know is cited in different ways by the gospel writers, although there's really no mention of how Jesus appeared. But this caught the the eye of one of my students, um, a young woman named Katie. Melanchon, who, um, and I just want to read her reflections on this, which I find so powerful and in alignment with, you know, what we just see, we just saw about Jesus's uh, humble posture. So, um, so we see in, um, in her, in her presentation, who was the servant of the Lord? I think it is fair to assume that the described servant of the Lord was Isaiah prophesying about Jesus Christ hundreds of years before he was born. The servant of the Lord was said to have grown up in the Lord's presence. The servant of the Lord was described to have have an appearance that was not appealing to the human eye. He stood out to us aesthetically, but not in a positive way. The servant of the Lord was described as almost looking inhuman, as you could barely tell that he was a man whether that means that he had an androgynous appearance or if that means he simply didn't look human at all. I'm unsure, but the point is made that we know the servant of the Lord was physically unattractive. This description makes sense and is accurate from the description that we have of Jesus Christ from the New Testament. Yet, it is strange that in all forms of art depicting Jesus, old and new, we are often greeted with the soft smile of a white man with a beard and beautiful long hair. These works of art are beautiful, but biblically and geographically inaccurate. We know that Jesus was not a beautiful man with light-colored skin, but a visually unappealing brown-skinned man. This brings up the question, why are we often depicting our Lord and Savior as something that he's not, when we have such a strong description? And of course, um, here Katie is, um, is using Isaiah 53 to describe what Jesus looked like, even though in the gospel accounts we don't have any description of what Jesus looked like. But but that's okay. I, I still find this so powerful. In my opinion, she says, I think it is strict, it strictly comes down to how the human mind works. We are humans and we have we are a bit hardwired to follow beauty. We see this every day in media when it comes to modeling and social media, but this is also present in who we trust politicians will do better based on their appearance look at justin trudeau often attractive criminals will receive lighter sentencing attractive job candidates will often receive the job the position before their more qualified or experienced counterparts pretty privilege is all over our world and apparently even in how that we how we perceive jesus christ the question i have is Is this choice to make Jesus Christ appear more attractive? Um, Is it an an international one or an intentional one? In my mind, I can justify why this may be the case. Painting Jesus Christ as more attractive, especially closer to the time that Jesus was around, may have been a way to make him seem like a more trustworthy man to follow and may have been an aspect in Christianity gaining more followers. As mentioned before, we as humans naturally follow and trust the ones we find more attractive. This is a common tactic used today, but I also think the beautification of Jesus Christ has caused great harm. Even in the same chapter of Isaiah where they describe Jesus Christ's appearance, they also describe him as perfect in every way and without sin. This means perfection has nothing to do with physical appearance. When beautifying Jesus Christ, we are sending the message that in order to be Christ-like and perfect you have to be physically attractive. This is the wrong message to be sent. It is empowering to have a savior who wasn't physically attractive and to have a leader that wasn't beautiful. Christ being unattractive sent a message of you don't have to be perfect to follow me. This says that beauty is not perfection. Christ being unattractive also allowed the people that he was preaching to to hear what he was saying without the rose-colored glasses. Their opinions of him were not fogged by his appearance. Christ did not have blind followers because of his appearance. This tells us that Jesus was saying things actually worth listening to and that he was worth following despite his unattractive appearance. So I just find that to be really profound. And in keeping with, you know, what we see in Luke's Gospel of just, um, you know, what happens to Jesus and how right at the point of his action to save the world, that's when he's, you know, the most um, in the worst state in terms of his physical condition, right? I mean, he's, he's been tortured and he's spit upon, he's mocked, he's, he's nailed to a cross, you know, he's executed. And it's in that complete descent to um, into the to death that Jesus overcomes death and um, overcomes, you know, um, all of the powers of evil, and that is the gospel that I, I I just want us to really focus in on, and 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 we want to let that gospel and that understanding of of just God's true power uh, penetrate. Into our hearts and cause us to turn, and um, you know maybe turn again, like uh, like Jesus said of Peter, you know once you 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 turn again, you're converted again, and strengthen the brothers and sisters. And so let's let's try to you know turn again this uh, you know this these next few days uh, prior to Easter and of course afterwards. And, um, and then strengthen one another in this beautiful way of the cross that is the way of victory.